Welcome to the To Read List. I'm Bailey, and this is a podcast where I attempt to get through the 148 unread books on my shelf. With me, as always, is my friend Toby. Hey. My brother Andrew. Bonjour. And my husband Dylan's the sound recordist. We. Oh, very French today. I wonder why. I know. Hard to say. Hard to say. Hard to say. I've used up all my French already. (laughs) You guys are ridiculous. Um, Andrew, I am dying to know. You told me that you and Jillian went to see Emma adaptation on opening night not just your friend emma not not just your friend emma the book adaptation how was it it was pretty great yay (laughs) yay it's so it's from jillian who has recently read emma and is a connoisseur of all the adaptations she says it's a reasonably faithful adaptation to it but it also i think sort of attempts to modernize the jane austen adaptation by like adding fun newer elements in terms of just like making the design not hyper-realistic, making it kind of more extreme. So mm. Emma drives like a Lamborghini. Yeah, she drives a Lamborghini. She's a gamer. She's a gamer girl. She wears those big headphones. She dabs a lot. <laughs> yeah. But like instead of using hyper-realistic costumes, they're like a little more fun and playful and like going to the extreme of the design versus striving for accuracy. I don't know. I really I had a good time. I was more familiar with the movie Clueless than the plot of the book Emma, uh, and I had a great time. Well, I mean, it's very similar. Yeah, down to the <laughs> fact that they actually go to a party at the Randalls. Oh, and the Val party later? Yeah, they go to Randalls party in the Valley. I'm participating as much as I can as a person who has never read Emma, nor seen an adaptation of Emma, nor ever even seen Clueless. Well, Clueless is an adaptation of Emma. I, yeah, well, as soon as I said it, I realized it. That happens to me a lot on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we got some really good feedback about our fan fiction episode. People especially liked Jillian's piece. Of course. <laughs> there was a lot of good feedback about Jillian's fan fiction. Like my mom called and was like, I love Jillian's piece. I was like, what about mine? And she's like, Jillian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was my wife's reaction. We also just passed National Love Your Pet Day. Have you guys been loving your pets? Oh, not really. And Arnold and I are in a fight. Oh, why? No, I'm ki- oh, I'm kidding. I love that guy. Oh. <laughs> I have, though, close listeners to the podcast will like to know that this morning, Pierogi, my cat, delivered her opinion on the names heard long ago, Hungarian soccer and its influence on the modern game by vomiting on my copy of the book. (laughs) She might be deciding whether or not we read that on the podcast herself. (laughs) Did she ruin the book? It's not great, but it's not unusable. I have to decide. (laughs) I did see an article on Medium the other day um, that was basically against the to read list. Our podcast? Not our podcast in specifically, (gasps) but But I didn't even know this was an opinion that people held. But there are people out there who object to the gamification of reading, they call it, such as making a list and being like, I'm going to read X number of books this year. They say reading should be an experience that you sink into. And there was a Franz Kafka quote at the end that said, every book you read should break your heart, because otherwise, what's the point of reading? Uh, and I finished the article and I was like, oh, okay, she has like a, somewhat of a point, but also what a miserable life to lead uh, when every every single thing you have to read needs to be something that breaks your heart and is like the most consequential thing you've ever read. I hate everything about that. <laughs> yeah, that person sounds like they're a real killer at parties, man. <laughs> yeah. I just feel like she's essentially being like, you shouldn't tell people how to read. And then she's like, so I'm going to tell you how to read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was pretty brutal. I like the gamification of anything. Like, you know, you got to guess like 
what's the next car that drives by? What color is it going to be? Yeah. I I, guess. Always hot pink. Always. Because when you're right, it's really impressive. (laughs) For listeners at home, Dylan and Bailey's house is just a giant checkerboard and they move from square to square. We do have a lot of games here. And the name of that article is, uh, if you guys want to check it out and make yourself miserable, it's called Why Reading a Book a Day is a Very Bad Idea (laughs) on medium.com. And the author is Anahita Zev. Here's the thing, though. I, I didn't read the article. And I, now I just realized that you sent it to me and I didn't read it. <laughs> so it's reading a book a day. So the, the article is based on a TED Talk given by a man named Ty Lopez, who spoke about how he kind of speed reads and speed executes getting a lot of books done. And obviously, I think that is probably a bad idea. You should probably not be reading one book per day as fast as you possibly can. Well, yeah, I mean, that's but then she just ex- for quantity. But then yeah. she extended it to, she said, this is also prevalent in the society of Goodreads, you know, setting reading goals and mm-hmm. like, you know, humble bragging about how many books you read per year, which I felt oh. was an unfair extension of uh, of the argument. Yeah, I agree. Have you ever seen Ty Lopez's commercials? No, who's Ty Lopez? He's that guy on YouTube that's in his garage with his Lamborghinis. And he says, like, these are my Lamborghinis and everything. I have seen that guy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't know his name was Ty Lopez. And his bookshelf full of walls and knowledge. Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be cool to be able to read really fast, but only for specific things like that you were assigned to read. Yeah. Or I guess if you're trying to finish a book for this podcast, the To Read List podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm terrible at skimming. That's something I really need to. Maybe I should watch this TED Talk. No. You no. don't need to skim. No. Don't skim. Don't reward Lamborghini guy. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, are you skim or whole milk book? I'm a 2% <laughs> kind of guy. No, um, I am hopeless at skimming also. I always worry I've missed things. I do a lot of double backing. I was going to say, uh, I do the same sure thing. To make sure I've caught what was going on. Yeah, I think we're very similar readers, Bailey, mm-hmm. but you're faster than me. Do you do the thing where you're like, you skim through like maybe like a few pages. You're like, yeah, I did it. And they're like, I should go back and check. And you never miss anything, but you feel like you might. Usually what ends up happening is I end up sort of zoning out and then have been like turning the pages and like moving my eyes and realize I haven't been reading yeah, actually, like actually processing any of the words for about two pages. I hate that sensation. It yeah. doesn't happen yeah. usually. If that happens to me like twice in a row, I'll just be like, I'm not reading right now. Like something's wrong with my brain. Yeah, gotta take a break. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, <laughs> this week on the podcast, Toby had a book chosen at random from his shelf. Toby, what book did you read? I read Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. I'm excited to hear your review. I just want to say heads up that a lot of our listeners really love this book. This is like a favorite of a lot of people. (laughs) So no pressure, but I'm very curious how your opinion stacks up to that. Great. Pachinko is the multi-generational story of a Korean family and the trials that they face when they move from Korea to Japan in the 1920s. That being said, the novel begins in the 1910s and follows the characters, um, some of whom are in family, some of whom are out of the family, all the way through to 1989. It is a huge timeline that actually still feels really intimate um, because most of the story relates to the main character, Sunja. The themes that run really strongly through the book are things like missing fathers, the balance of power between the sexes, poverty, racism, and the value or the valuelessness of patriotism and what it means to be patriotic to a country or care about the welfare of a country as as a whole. It's a heavy book. It's got a lot going on. (laughs) Uh, Some of you may wonder about the title if you haven't read it. Pachinko is a game. (laughs) Um, We in America call it Plinko, but we play a simplified version of it. It's a gambling game where there is a kind of uh, a canted 
plane in front of you with a bunch of little steel pins poking out towards you and you put a ball at the top and it falls down in a certain way and at the bottom it's going to fall into a certain well and certain wells give you money and certain wells take away money from you it's a gambling game andrew made his own set of plinko once i did i spent a whole afternoon at work making a plinko board (laughs) what what work was this so my work is is running workshops and one time we did a game show theme Mm -hmm. and i was like really new to the company i wasn't really doing a lead role in anything so i didn't have a lot of responsibility and and so i spent all day like nailing these nails into foam core and like dropping a ping pong ball it was actually really fun yeah it stayed in the center for quite a while that's awesome well that's interesting that you say that because in japan of this era there were a lot of pachinko parlors basically run by korean people and it was um there's i will say it right now there's a lot of racism in this book uh, basically of the japanese towards korean people and it was basically a view of the japanese that this was a kind of den of you know ridiculous gambling excess and basically the way it worked is that if you played a bunch of pachinko you can kind of tell where the ball is going to go but the people who run the parlors every night would kind of tap at the steel pins to adjust the trajectory of the ball so you never really know where it's going to go day after day that sounds good smart yeah exactly so um this is a a semi-quote but I've explained the game to you. So the, the quote is that Pachinko is a game where there are few winners uh, and the game is fixed. But if you play Pachinko, you have to play and hope and hope things turn out well. And that, to me, is basically the overarching theme of this entire book is that life is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But there are people who seem to be able to play it anyway and just hope that things turn out well. And then there are people who basically give up and say the game is rigged. The game is fixed. Something, this is unfair. And God comes in every night and taps the nails. <laughs> yeah, God's tapping nails, you know. I don't want to do spoiler. We don't do spoilers on this podcast. And I will say very early in the book, there is a major event that happens to Sunja that I think is very enjoyable to read and very exciting. And one of my complaints about the book is that it is not very exciting. The book uh, in general, not the, the book. In, okay. The book in general. Okay. So, here, so here's one of the things I feel about it huge things are happening all the time. Like people are moving countries, relationships are changing in these dynamic ways. Uh, But for me, the prose style is so incredibly subdued and so straightforward. And this is so subdued that it can make the plot events feel really sleepy, like incredibly sleepy. Um, So things are happening all the time. But I, I would go through you know, hours and hours of reading and be like, man, like, won't something happen? And then I would think back on it and be like, oh, man, a lot of stuff did happen. That was amazing. So certainly to me, the most interesting part of this book is the historical research. Things feel deeply researched, fully realized and very accurate. Um, and it's really cool. You get a window into the past and how things used to be. As an American, I feel like I know little to nothing about the detailed history of the you know 20th century of anywhere in the East. So it's really cool to to feel like you're in that world. I'd say that's one of the, my favorite things about the book. Racism is depicted in a very visceral and powerful way. Um, these people experience a ton of racism. It's really brutal. And, and it, it really makes you feel like the kind of unending tide of it. You know, they it's one scene, they'll experience racism in one way, and then they'll kind of turn around and you'll be like, okay, wow, that was intense. And then boom, they're hit with something else. And then they're on their way home and boom, they're hit with something else. And it just does a good job, I think, of showing how it can be so exhausting to live in a place that, that hates you. So that being said, if I had not have to read this book for this podcast, I would have DNF'd this book. But oh, I'm saying, surprised saying, on that, but, based okay, on here. Here we go. Wait for it. I would have DNF'd it. Okay. But then... Uh-huh. Something happens in the last fifth of this book. I feel like the author all of a sudden 
is just like, okay, now it gets exciting. Mm-hmm. Like a couple new characters come in, they act in ways that actually push the plot forward. They react in a like a little bit bigger of a way, which I think might be a commentary on kind of modern ways of reacting to things. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of a sudden, people start like saying things out loud and like having opinions and telling each other what they think, and like all this stuff comes to a head so so powerfully in the last fifth of the book that it really brought it up in my estimation. But I never would have made it there. So what would have stopped you, like you said, just like not enough exciting prose? Um, exciting prose and the fact that the prose to me dragged the excitement of the actual events, the plot down. Okay. So are you glad that you didn't DNF it? I am glad. Yeah. So my final opinion on it is I'm going to give it four stars. Oh. But I'm not going to recommend it to anybody. <laughs> Went from DNF to four stars. But that being said, it's a weird four stars because I wouldn't feel comfortable recommending it to anyone because I wouldn't want to be like, the last fifth is so good. Yeah, I wouldn't want to mm-hmm. give you a cake and be like, the bottom is good, <laughs> you know, like, but the middle is just like plain flour. Um, not to say this, that the first four fifths are not without merit, but I, I did find them a slog. Well, what would you rate the first four fifths? Like, just like a three. Okay. Like a three. But threes for me is like, meh, why bother? I think that you and I just have different DNF yeah. standards, because for me, a three, I'm definitely going to finish. It's also quite long. Okay. It's it's not a short book. It's it. it's a long and be, and when I'm when you're not enjoying the prose itself, long longish books can feel even way longer. I never found myself in the first four fifths being like, "Cool, I'm excited to read this right now." I'd be like, mm. "Okay," but I have preferences for prose that I think is more flowery than most people like. And every once in a while, she really does throw a slammer sentence in there that's really good. Mm. But and I would get excited, and then it'd be back to like a couple like twenty pages of. So would you say it's like a gamble if you like it? Um, well, like it's like, a, it's I, I like think, a pachinko game. Are you saying that the plot went one way and then all of a sudden went the other way when you least expected it? Yeah, but yes. <laughs> well, do you think she really nailed the ending once the ball got rolling? Oh, God. Dylan, see, it's unfair because he just gets to sit there. I've been talking this whole time. Um, I do. I will say I think I'm on the on the outside of this one. Most people seem to like it. If it intrigues you, definitely give it a read. I would love to hear listeners, if you loved Pachinko, you know, let us know in, in the comments for this episode or email us what you liked about it. Yeah, I'm interested. Yeah. I can, I can kind of imagine, but I, yeah, I, I want to hear. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you did still give it four stars, though. Yeah. That's true. It's, it's, I mean, I'm telling you, that last fat fifth of the book is dynamite. Really good bottom of the cake. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Andrew, do you have any facts on Min Jin Lee? What if I said no? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys, not this episode. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, so Min Jin Lee uh, was born on November 11th, 1968 in Seoul, South Korea. She moved with her family to New York when she was seven years old and was raised in Elmhurst, Queens. Her parents worked owning a jewelry store and Min Jin Lee learned to read and write at the Queens Public Library. Mm. So shout out to the public libraries out there. Uh, she went on to attend Yale, where she studied history and went on to attend Georgetown Law School. She did write in college and actually received some awards for her work, but immediately after school went into the law world and worked as a corporate lawyer in New York City. Uh, she then left this work to focus on her writing, um, and she writes both nonfiction as well as uh, novels and short stories. Uh, she said that the three books that influence her work the most are Middlemarch by George Eliot, Cousin Bet by Balzac, and The Bible. I have never heard of this Cousin Bet. Neither have I, but I will say Middlemarch, notoriously boring. 
also shows up on like the influence pages of like every writer too though so mm-hmm. maybe there's something there so this next chunk of the info is from an interview with the guardian it's specifically about the legacy of frederick Douglass, but these two answers uh directly deal with uh pachinko the interviewer asks in your view what is the role of the social novel in political resistance what is the role of art in political movements and political movement making minjin lee says all art is political because it is created by people i explicitly intended to write political novels my first book free food for millionaires is a critique of class and immigration in america my second novel is about koreans in japan in relation to colonialism and xenophobia both novels deal with themes of immigration race and homeland primarily they speak to what the diaspora does and means for people who are scattered throughout the world my third novel american hagwon will complete my trilogy so these are part of a trilogy the novels are unrelated in characters but related by the theme of diaspora political novels can be boring to read unless written effectively with powerful tools of fiction i was trying to do this i want my books to be pleasurable and edifying 50 percent oh toby <laughs> i'm Burn. kidding i'm totally kidding i couldn't not take the shot i'm kidding min Jen lee <laughs> christopher petrella who's the name of the interviewer then follows up the opening line of pachinko your latest novel reads history has failed us but no matter what inspired such a powerful idea History has failed us, but no matter, serves as my thesis statement. I believe history has failed almost everybody who is ordinary in the world, not just the Korean and Japanese who are the subjects of Pachinko. I'm also arguing that the discipline of history has failed. It's not that historians aren't doing their jobs, but rather that the memory of history has been reconstructed by the elite because the overwhelming majority of ordinary people rarely leave sufficient primary documents. They do not have others recording their lives in real time. The phrase, but no matter, is a statement of defiance. It doesn't matter that history has failed us because ordinary people have persisted anyway. This idea gives me enormous amount of strength and hope as a writer because I am an ordinary person. Those of us who may be women of color, immigrants, or working class aren't often meant to be people who write novels about ideas, but no matter. That was a powerful and intelligent answer. Yeah. This is a hardcore interview. That interview is not plain. <laughs> yeah, that was a little more intense than our usual interviews, I'd point out. <laughs> but wait, wait, wait. Andrew, does it say what her favorite flavor of Oreo is? <laughs> <laughs> no, but her website bio lists many, many accomplishments and awards. She has grants and fellowships up the wazoo uh, including Guggenheim fellowships and many awards from PEN America but one accomplishment stands out and she particularly called it out she said on July 10th 2018 she speaking about herself because it's a third person biography had the unique honor of being a double Jeopardy clue in literary types category for $1,200 on the game show Jeopardy Korean born Min Jin Lee wrote a 2017 book with this Japanese pinball game as its title to which the contestant Becky answered correctly in the interrogative what is Pachinko. Ah, I love it. It came after this list of like Guggenheim Fellowship, Pan America Award. And then she's like, no, but I want a paragraph about I finally made it. I'm a Jeopardy answer. Honestly, if I were a Jeopardy answer, that would be like. That would be top of all accomplishments. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and she is working on her third novel, American Hagwon, which will complete that trilogy. And she's also working on a nonfiction book called Name Recognition. She's married to a man named Christopher Duffy and has a son named Sam. <laughs> Sam Duffy. Sam Duffy. That's lovely. Great research. Yeah, good one. Man, I yeah. want to play Jeopardy Clue. I'm just thinking about that. I want to play Pachinko. <laughs> Me too. All right. Well, uh, Pachinko by Min Jin Lee, four stars. Four stars. Do not recommend. i know it's so bizarre to critique someone's work and then hear like such an estimable biography and be like what am i doing why why, like how dare i how dare i (laughs) the people want to know the people want to know your thoughts Uh, no no, they don't Speaking of people wanting to know your thoughts, Bailey, didn't you read a book this week as well? Oh man, transition game on point. That was great. That was a great transition. Okay, guys, 
Dylan, Toby, Andrew, listeners, I'm going to bring you into what it's like inside the brain of me. Okay, so this is what happened. Step one, Dylan shows the book A Year in the Merit by Stephen Clark for me. Great. Okay. Here's the thing about this. <laughs> this book was given to me before I was about to go study in Paris. I've talked about this a million times. I'm not going to brag about it anymore. However, I picked it up and started to read the back. And it says, the antidote to Peter Mall, this almost true memoir will appeal equally to Francophobes and Francophiles. And it also says, call him the anti-Mall. Stephen Clark is acerbic, insulting, un-PC, and mostly hilarious. Ooh. Okay. So this means nothing to almost every person in the world, except for me, who hears the anti-Mall. This is a parody of Peter Mall. Well, I have a Peter Mall book on my shelf. Oh, no. Encore Provence. So it's like, so I can't read, this is this is my brain. Oh, no. I can't read the parody until I read the original. However, oh, no. the original I have on my shelf, Encore Provence. Is in Francais? Is not the first in the series. The oh. first in the series is A Year in Provence. Oh. So I, I had to name. get A Year in Provence out and read that first. <laughs> and then I read A Year in the Merde. And then I read Encore Provence. Listeners at home. Bailey, Bailey is waving her arms like a, like an air traffic controller right now. She's got, she's got it. She's literally got a Peter Mall book in each hand and she's conducting air traffic with them. And the thing about Encore Provence too is like. <laughs> she's still doing it. This one I've had since 1999, which was given to me again before I went to Provence. Guys, I'm feeling very privileged in saying that. But I've had it for so long that I had to read it. But I've also had it for so long that it's not on audiobooks. There's the only audio available of it is like getting tapes out from the library. I had to do it. So that that, so wait, that wait, was are my. You, are you telling me you read both of those? Three books. Holy, holy merd. Bailey. Holy <sighs> merd. But I got two off my list. Three. Oh, no, that other one wasn't and on here. A Year in Provence was not <laughs> even on the list. That was a bonus book. All right. Are we are we going to allow Bailey to choose her next two books then? Here's the I don't thing. think we should reward this kind of behavior. And I think that woman that wrote the Medium article would be horrified by this. <laughs> also, I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to because, full confession, I thought that Encore Provence followed A Year in Provence. Well, that but, makes a lot of sense. Yes, but there's one in the middle called Toujours Provence. <sighs> so this is actually the third in the series. So I haven't even read the second one. Guys, nothing How counts. How much is going on in Provence? I, I, I envision Provence as a very laid back place. That it is. Okay. So so this review, I will be brief, but I did read three books. You're a monster, Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, let's start. Where should I start? With the book that we assigned you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. We'll start with the book that was assigned to me. I did extra credit, though. Mark it down. You haven't been being graded for years, Bailey. <laughs> I miss it. I miss it so much. Okay, A Year in the Merit. So this one is a parody of Maul. So this follows a character named Paul West. He is an Englishman who moves to Paris um, to take a job setting up English tea rooms. And he is just kind of like this, what would be the word? I want to say pig. He like objectifies women all the time. He's there for like the hot girls and the wine. And he has a lot of critiques about the city of Paris and how gross it is that he's stepping in dog poop all the time. And, you know, French don't understand what he's saying, that sort of thing. So that's that's the premise of this one. And there's series for them both. Okay. But this is the first in a six book series. Oh, wow. Yeah. That I don't think is done. Oh, no. It just keeps going. Who knew? Anyway, 
then a year in Provence. And I mean, Encore Provence is essentially the same, except year in the Merde is more a direct parody because like a year in Provence starts starting with January and the next chapter is February and he goes through the whole year. And this one's a parody to the extent where they start in September. And he's like, no Frenchman would say the year starts in January, starts in September. What? So, Hmm. but this one, it's more the rural living in Provence. I'm imagining like all creatures great and small. Is that the same vibe? I don't know what that, I haven't read it. Uh, James Harriet, I believe. Oh, he was like he was like a country vet, and it's like stories of the colorful characters that you meet yes. being a country vet. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, Peter Mall is again an Englishman. He moved to Provence and bought a house there, and it's about him fixing up this house in the country and the crazy characters he meets and how difficult it is to fix up a house in the country and all the people that want to come visit him. And but it's more of a love letter to France, whereas this one is more of like. I would say like a neg letter. Like it's like he, <laughs> at his heart, he loves it, but he just wants to say a lot of negative things. And, you know, Encore Provence is just more stories. It's just not told in like the year format. Mm-hmm. So that's the premise. Still waving her arms around like an air traffic controller with a book in each hand. Because I read them both, I have to just posit this as sort of a one versus the other situation. Yeah, do it. Uh, so, you know, everybody has their own tastes. Tell For us For example, yours. Dylan's mom, my mother-in-law, um, <gasps> She texted me and was like, have you read A Year in the Merit yet? Because she reads everything for this podcast. Yeah. goes above and beyond. It's shocking. And I had not because I was deep in Peter Mall. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> she was like, I had to DNF it because the guy is such a pig. Mm. And so this book was not for her. However, I feel like the Peter Mall stuff 100% would be for her. Mm. But on the other hand, I feel like you, Toby, would like the Stephen Clark better than the Peter Mall. What does that say Wait about who you think I am? <laughs> well, because it's, it's like... I just threw out an all creatures great and small reference. Thank you very much. Well, maybe Andrew would. It's, it's more like a... It's, How dare you? It's more of a crass humor versus like a sweet... What's the word? Like country living. You gave Anthony Bourdain five stars. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, okay, okay. So, to illustrate my point. Wow. Let's keep this to what you thought. Okay, it'd be so, fine. It'd be so great if the podcast ended right there and we never published any more episodes. We put out this episode and it ends with like a click right there. <laughs> fine, I'll say what I thought. But first, okay, so I'm going to give you a paragraph from the first chapter in each book so you can s- sense the difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not talking to you right now. Okay, great. So this is... This is from the first chapter of Encore Provence, Peter Mall, the OG, okay? For me, moments that make up the texture of daily life define the character of Provence as much as the history of the landscape. And if I had to choose a single example of what I missed most in America, it would be a country market. Nothing out of the ordinary, just the usual collection of stalls that are set up each week in every town from Apt to Vaison la Romaine. They have an instant visual charm, these markets, with their bursts of vividly colored flowers and vegetables and their handwritten signs, the stalls shaded by ancient plane trees or tucked up against even older stone walls. They might have been artistically arranged for a postcard photographer or for the high seasons to be dismantled and forgotten at the end of summer, but you will find them in January as in August because their bread and butter come from local inhabitants. The tourist is just a dollop of jam. Welcome, but not essential. So you get it. It's like a pastoral feeling. He is a great writer. He gives you a sense of it. Okay, so that that's that one. This is the first chapter of A Year in the Merit. I edged closer to the reception desk, where two women had stopped kissing and were now exchanging news. The company obviously didn't believe in glamorous front office girls. 
because the receptionist had a masculine face that seemed much more suited to scowling than smiling. She was complaining about something I didn't understand. The boss evidently kept the glamorous ones in his office because Christine, the assistant who took me up to the fifth floor, was a tall brunette with poise and a dark-lipped smile that would have melted a man's trousers at 20 paces. I was standing mere inches away from her in the elevator, looking deep down into her eyes, breathing in her perfume. Slightly cinnamon. She smelled edible. It was one of those occasions when you think, come on, elevator, conk out now, get jammed between two floors. I've had a pee, I can take the weight. Just give me an hour or two to work my charm with a captive audience. I was joking before, now I am legit offended. (laughs) 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 That's all I have to say. Well, you know, it's not for me, but the two chauvinists I do this podcast with would love it. Chauvinist, that's the word I was trying to think of. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey, we're in a fight. Oh, no. Okay, so maybe not you guys. Okay. It does, I will say, once you, I had to take like a breath and think, this is a character. This is not him. This is a character. I think it's really like basically him, but I just was like, it's a character. And I was like, okay, I can get behind it. I can get through this. And then once you get to the third act, you get used to it and it becomes sort of, him versus his corrupt boss, and that's kind of fun and interesting. Hmm. My ultimate review is... What's your review of me and Andrew? <laughs> Chauvinist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> so my ultimate review with The Year in the Merit is that I'm giving it two stars. Mm-hmm. It really is more like three, but because it was so hard to get through that beginning, and he's such a pig, ultimately it's two. Mm-hmm. The mall stuff, I would say, is three because it's lovely, it's like just a warm day in the country but it's not transformative it's not going to change your life i'm sure somebody would give it five stars but i don't think so i think most people would be like okay these are middle of the road and you're going to prefer one over the other depending on your level of crass humor i think the insane nature of the world guarantees that there are people out there that would give these books five stars yeah you're probably right i did look it up and um a year in the merd has thirteen thousand ratings on goodreads a year in provence has fifty eight thousand. so you know yeah, I don't know. I It's like, it's weird because I'm revu- reviewing three books and I feel like I haven't gotten really detailed into any of them. But like Toby said, like you kind of can tell from the premise what the book is going to be. Yeah. And if it's for you, you should check it out. If you don't care about France, don't read it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sounds like you're saying don't read either of them. I'm saying Zutalor. Zutalor. <laughs> are you going to keep it on your shelf, Bill? <laughs> sounds like you are not. I mean... Billy, are you going to keep on your shelf or are you going to give it to Toby and Andrew? Yeah. <laughs> Please. I'm having a weird thing. I don't think this has happened to me before where I don't really feel the need to keep either of these except for the fact that I've had this one since 2005 and this one since 1995. So mm. it almost feels like they already have a spot on the shelf. And if I take them away, it's like the other books will be like, where's my friend? but that's inside my mind (laughs) all right andrew tell us stephen clark is he a pig you know tbd Uh Uh no okay so stephen clark there's not a tremendous amount of him available online in terms of like general bios so i had to rely a lot on an interview he did and his own personal website which is 
uh, quite simply laid out. So keep in mind, a lot of this information is going to come from him. So it might be hard to get like the real story. Uh, but Stephen Clark was born on October 15th, 1958 in St. Albans, which is a city to the north of London. And then this is from his website. This is how he introduces himself. Not one of the other Stephen Clarks you might have read about, which include an Olympic swimmer, a world record holding pumpkin sculptor, and various criminals. I'm just the author whose latest book is Elizabeth II, Queen of Laughs. That's his like splash page. Enter his website. <laughs> All right. This is from his actual uh, bio on his website. I grew up in Bournemouth, the Bondi Beach of England, where I played bass in some of the worst rock bands in musical history before leaving town to study French and German at Oxford. After university, I got a series of high-powered jobs in the wine industry, great picking, tertiary sector, washing up at a German hotel, and in international diplomacy, teaching English to bored French businessmen. Meanwhile, I started writing novels, all of which remained unpublished due to a vast and never-before-revealed conspiracy in the global publishing industry. I then moved to Glasgow, where I was hired to put rude words into French dictionaries. Hmm. Check out my work on on blank in the Collins Roberts Dictionary. <laughs> as soon as I heard about the possibility of a French 35-hour week, I moved to Paris and got a job as a journalist at an English language magazine. I kept writing fiction and, despite fierce opposition from my bank manager, finally decided to self-publish A Year in the Merde via my own fictional company. I began trying to sell A Year first as I was living in Paris and after three months of hoofing copies around the streets in a shopping trolley, I sold the book, not only to bookshops, but to a major publisher who promised me that they had their own delivery service so I would not have to do any any more heavy lifting. Wow, he published it himself. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was initially self-published and then it got picked up and distributed. And then he was signed on to write more of them. Um, this is from an interview with Bonjour Paris or BonjourParis.com. <laughs> <laughs> How do you get your ideas for your novels? From a website, ideasfornovels.com. <laughs> What is your favorite book you've written and why? It would have to be my first novel, A Year in the Merde. Not only did it get me started as a professional writer, its success was such a huge shock that I still feel grateful to everyone who started to buy it after I self-published it. They believed in a novel no publisher wanted. It was a fantastic feeling. I'm also very fond of A Thousand Years of Annoying the French. It was a huge amount of research and quite a risk retelling a millennium's worth of history with jokes, but it went to number one in the UK and started me off on my new second career writing history books. Okay. And finally, what were some of your favorite books when you were a child? In Search of Time Lost and War and Peace, though that was before I learned to read. I used them as bridges for my toy cars. Later, I really loved the William books by Richemal Crompton, All, a gang of boys hanging out having adventures in the woods, fields, and other people's back gardens. Their most technological toy, a stick that looked like a sword. I, I'm not convinced that this guy is not the character character in the book continue <laughs> yeah that's fair uh i was wondering about that as i was after having put this together and hearing your review i was like i can't disprove <laughs> <laughs> oh no i was gonna say i kind of wish that the interviewer for minjin lee interviewed him just of like yeah where do you think art fits into political revolution by the way <laughs> yeah <laughs> um he's now written six volumes in the paul west saga as well as a new numerous history books including a thousand years of annoying the french and his newest elizabeth ii queen of laughs uh just so you guys know all the titles of the paul West saga because I think it's important. Uh, there is A Year in the Mared, followed by Mared Actually, but that was in, released in the US as In the Mared for Love. It's a better name. Number three is Mared Happens. Number four is Dial M for Mared. Number five is The Mared Factor. And number six is Mared in Europe, Ooh. which is his most recent published one. So hard to say if he's just a guy who's always on or if that's really his personality, but yeah. I mean, in the book, he does teach English to bored Frenchmen, so... Could be the same guy. Just saying. I will give one critique of Peter Mall. Peter Mall. He never even gives his wife's name. <laughs> so like, whereas this guy won't shut up about women, like this guy, you know, barely talks. About, and maybe his wife's like, "Don't put me in your book." All right. Well, a year in the Married by Stephen Clark, two stars. A year in Provence, and Encore Provence by Peter Mall. 
three stars. Toby, Andrew, what do you give A Year in the Marriage? Uh, I don't know. I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm five stars. I, I assume it's going to be my favorite book I've ever read. <sighs> I'm never going to live this down. <laughs> uh, Andrew, do you have a game for us? I do. Are you guys excited? Wee, Absolutely. Wee, wee. So while researching uh, these authors, I was struck by the fact that both of the stories involve people going to places where they're not historically from and um, dealing with the consequences and, and the new experiences thereof. So the name of the game this week is called Wrong Page. And the way it works is I have written five sentences slash short paragraphs uh, that involve a character from literature being trapped in a different story. Both stories should be familiar to both of you. I tried to do a mix of books I know that you had both read or at least were familiar with, and I will read them one at a time. It'll be best up to three. I only have five, so we're going to need a correct answer on each of them. The way it'll work is you can buzz in by yelling, wrong page, at the end of the paragraph because i worked hard writing them okay okay so we we guess the book that they're supposed to be in or what do we guess that's a great question so what you're going to be guessing is the character who's transported into the wrong book and the book they're in okay so you have to get both yeah so for example you could say gatsby awoke in the chamber of secrets and the answer would be jay gatsby harry potter okay you can just if it's if it's a series of books you can just say the world because they don't track to a specific book in the series if i use any from a series so that's a hint there are some series okay good to know i'm in but just maybe okay uh the marriage series All right. Number one, the rum tum tugger galloped away, leaving me more confused than I thought possible. More than anything, I wanted to be back in the world I understood, a world that made sense. I missed Samwise and Gandalf the most. Begrudgingly, I walked on all fours after the cat. Wrong page. That would be a rum tum tugger. Um, and the world. Nope. What? The rum tum. That is incorrect. Oh, I don't know who, who wrote that book, but the world is the Lord of the Rings. Uh, so no, you have reversed it. Bailey, do you want to steal? The rum tongue tiger galloped away, leaving me more confused uh, than I thought possible. Yeah, it, more it, than anything, I wanted to be back in the world I understood. Uh, Frodo Baggins is stuck in Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Ah, uh, that is correct, Bailey. One point for you. No. If it's any consolation, Toby, that was one I assumed Bailey was going to get. So there should be some that are more up your alley down the road. Fingers crossed. More up yeah. your diagon alley. <laughs> Number two. My life's purpose was sapped from me. There was no one left on earth who I needed to take my revenge on. Defeated, I followed Ron to potions. Wrong page. Wrong page. Toby, you again got first. Okay. Edmund Dantes and the Harry Potter series. Yes. I like that he is also a student at Hogwarts, (laughs) even though he is a fully grown man. Well, Um, I mean, they they need a new defense against the dark arts teacher. I'm sure he could fill in. Yeah. That's true. That's true. Number three. I awoke after a sleep of an unknown length, but not in my New York apartment, in a castle in what I could only guess was the Scottish Highlands, based on the kilts. I awoke after a sleep of an unknown length. Toby. Bailey, you're getting wrecked on this. I'm going to try and remember her name. Oh... Um, that might be a fool's errand, Toby, is all I'm saying. I, I can... Okay, the unnamed narrator in Otessa Moshveig's book in Outlander? That is correct, yes. Toby. Or Rip Van Winkle. I thought Rip Van Winkle first, too. <laughs> that, I mean, that could also work, but New York City apartment yeah. um, oh. maybe disproves unnamed, it. Yeah. He, he did live in New York. In but New York. All right, Toby, you can get the win with another correct answer. Um, you are winning two to one. Number four. I, being an animal, thought I would fit in in this world, but my hooves and general size scared the rodents of this small abbey. I missed Paris. I have no oh, idea oh, who oh, the character oh, is. Oh, wrong page. Oh, no. <laughs> I know who it is. Jolly the goat. No. 
in yes. Redwall. <laughs> Obviously, I knew the setting. Oh, it took me oh, just a second longer for Jolly. Jolly is the bane of my existence on this podcast. Jolly is the best. <laughs> well, I figured because I've, he's been brought up so much, yeah. you would know who he was uh, well, at I know, this point. Obviously, I've never read that book. If it hadn't been for this podcast, I never would have thought of Jolly the goat. But now, <laughs> since he's cursed me. He's a big character in that book, yeah. just saying. Uh, new listeners enjoy not understanding what any of that meant. <laughs> <laughs> this is perfect. You guys both have two points. This is sudden death. I'm going to do a quick rule change here. You do not need to buzz in. Ooh. At the end of this paragraph, you can just yell the answer because it is sudden death. Okay? Okay. And whoever gets the answer correct will win. I had made an exhaustive list of everything in my new captor's abode and properly journaled it afterward. What are you doing? My captor said, I'm going to be late for my meeting with Lorne. Robinson Think Crusoe. So. Oh, and Tina Fey. And Tina Fey, bossy pants. Uh-uh. That's correct, oh. Bailey. Yes. <laughs> oh, well Oof. done, Bailey. A competitive Lorne. game going yeah. down to the wire. I want to see a Kate and Leopold style movie with Robinson Tina Fey and-, <laughs> and Liz Lemon. <laughs> like, ugh, but she doesn't. She's not in love with him. She's just annoyed by him. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Good game. Good game, Andrew. Well done. Yay. Now is the time of the podcast where Dylan chooses a book at random from our shelves for us to read next. It is The Choosing. The Choosing. The Choosing. Apparently The Choosing doesn't mean anything since Bailey's just going to read whatever she wants. It's true. Uh, Bailey is the king of this podcast. Well, Toby, I hope this uh, transition makes some sense, or at least a nickel, because you have number 46, Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. Uh oh, you're gonna have to. Cho- you're gonna wait. No, sorry, sorry. You're gonna have to choose again. I I read that one. What? <laughs> I read that one. I forgot to take it off the list. Four stars. Good, good book. You guys should read it. Very impactful. I was looking forward to it because it was on my list. It's a good book. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's cool. Some whiteheads. Well, that means we'll still get to do an episode about it yeah. sometime. Sorry, guys. I should have well, taken that okay. off. Okay. Am I the only one who plays by the rules? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh my God. Is it David Copperfield? No. The problem is that you're not going to believe this happened. Let's just say it. Okay, I used the random number generator, and it came up number 43. Number 43 is Middlemarch by George Eliot. Oh, <laughs> no. Yes. Yes. Oh, my Eat God, I'm so it. thrilled. Toby. Uh, I'm so thrilled. Middlemarch, Middlemarch, what? You could have just taken Nickel Boys. Uh, well, you know. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, oh, wow. This I mean, awesome. I, I don't know anything about Middlemarch. And besides the fact that it's, I think it's quite long, right? And not typically thrilling. So why did you add it to the list? <laughs> so mine is a mental, you know, list like great books that everyone seems to like and why haven't I read them yet? Okay. You know, or books that appeal to me randomly. But this is this is definitely in the category, you know, like Andrew mentioned, it's on a bunch of authors' favorite books. You know, like people, people love this book. It's a famous book. Everyone knows mm-hmm. it. So... I'm curious. My friend Camille, I think, took a year to read it. Well, I will be taking <laughs> less than that. You have four weeks, Toby. Is it crazy long? <laughs> it's like 900 pages. Do you want me to give you another? No, 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 no. no, no, no. no. He has to do it. I, I'm doing it. Bailey can do Anacrina in, yeah. in two weeks. Yeah, yeah. I have a month. I'll, I'll be fine. Yeah. Okay. Um, because that sounds like a very long journey and a very big Ooh, book. Because, Bailey, yeah. you have number 21. Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier. Hey. Is this what the movie was based on? Yeah. Two big ones okay. out the gate. This one is one that was like on Andrew and my parents' bookshelf growing up. And I would walk by it a lot and be like, when I'm older, maybe I'll read that book. 
I just feel like I got hit in the face with Middle March. (laughs) You set yourself up for it. This is what you get. Okay, cool. Cool. All right. Well, Well, (laughs) next week on the podcast, we have a mini-sode. Dylan's put together an apples-to-apples style game for us. It should be fun. Then in two weeks, I'll be reading Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier and Andrew's reading The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Thanks for listening to the To Read List. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email the To Read List podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Goodreads at goodreads.com slash the To Read List podcast. We're on Facebook and Instagram at the To Read List podcast and on Twitter at To Read List pod. If you enjoy this podcast, please go ahead and write us five stars. Uh, it really does help us with visibility, new people finding the podcast. Um, and you get to press a button and the stars fill up real nice. And thanks for all your reviews. They're pretty great. And after rating and reviewing us, if you also want to help us find more listeners, the best way to do that is to tell a friend, anyone you know who's a book lover who might like listening to our podcast. We would really appreciate it. It's the best way for new people to find our work. Thanks to Toby and Andrew for co-hosting the podcast with me, to Dylan for sound recording, and to Miss Jillian Beth Durkee for composing our intro song. See you next week. Happy reading. Books, books, books. books.